a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everyone, welcome to The Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week we're celebrating our exceptional board member, Latasha Wright, who has told a whopping five stories for us. This week's episode marks her four story featured on The Story Collider podcast. Not only are Latasha's stories about being strong in the face of hardships, but I've noticed that the more stories Latasha tells, the stronger they get. Just a little life lesson for all y'all new storytellers out there. Keep telling stories. This first story is the most recent story Latasha told on our stage. It was performed at Caveat in New York City in July 2022. Gavin Allison, whom you might remember from our podcast a few weeks ago, was also at the show that night, and he too fell in love with Latasha's story. He asked her to record a radio-style version of it for his podcast, Risk which is a storytelling show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. That version of Latasha's story airs on the Risk podcast on September 12th. Consider checking it out and subscribing to Risk. If you love story clatter, you might love Risk's stories as well. They're not always about science, but they are true tales boldly told, as their tagline says. And we're big fans. Anyway, here's Latasha. So on June 11, 2019, I woke up with this sense of foreboding. I was like, something is not right. And I just felt like off, you know? Like sometimes you wake up and this is not right. And I was like, maybe, maybe I should stay home, you know? But I had a lot of things to do. I had presentations to give, meetings to hold, and you know, it was 2019, so all of these things were in person. You know, shocking, I know. But I was like, okay, I gotta go. You got this, you can do this, go, go. And so I went to work. And then I was like, okay, but I might not feel well, but I'm going to treat myself. And so I bought some avocado toast and orange juice, thinking I was fancy. And then I sat down at my lab bench and I started eating and I was like, ooh, this tastes metallic. There's something weird going on. And then I started seeing these invisible confettis all around. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening to me? And I was like, okay, is this in my mind? I don't know. And then, you know, my colleague was in the other row and I was like, should I say something? Or is this like, I don't know. So I was like, okay, okay, I got this. Gonna go to the bathroom, splash water on my face, push the reset button because I got this today. And I went to the bathroom, splash water on my face, and then I had this intense pain in my right eye. It felt like someone had took an ice pick and was stabbing me in my eye. And so then I just started staggering around and, and I came back in and I was like, Francesca, ah, help. And she's like, what's happening? And I just want to let you know, um, like Gaster says, I was a, uh, I'm a PhD in molecular biology and I'm a neuroscientist and Francesca is a neuroscientist and she studied migraines. And she was like, 
okay. You're having a migraine. I was like, no, the pain, the pain. And she was like, no, no. You had a migraine aura and this, you're having an ocular migraine. It's gonna, it's gonna go away in an hour. And I was just laying down on, so I started laying down on the table and just crying, crying. And she was like, okay, been a little dramatic, okay. Um, maybe you should go home and let's go home together. And so we took a cab to my house. I took some Tylenol, I laid down and I was like, okay. She was like, I'm gonna set a timer and it should be over in an hour. And I was like, okay. And then after an hour, I was like, I still can't see in this eye. It was completely dark. And when I opened my eye, it was like this. I was like, nope, can't see. And so then we started thinking, maybe it's not a migraine. Let's see. And I was like, okay, let me get some water. Cause you know, obviously I think water is like the elixir of life. Um, so I went to the kitchen. I was gonna get some water. And then my whole left side collapsed and I was holding onto the sink. And I was like, Francesca, Francesca. And she came in and she helped me to fall to the floor safely. And then she called the ambulance. And you know, I live in the Bronx, right by Lincoln Hospital, so they got here really fast. And they came in and they said, okay, you know, smile. Then they had me hold out my hands and they pushed the hands down. And then they were like, well, we're not sure what's happening but we're gonna take you to the emergency room. And I was like, okay, I got this, fine, got this. So they put me on the gurney and then I'm rolling down my hallways and I'm thinking, oh, ain't the emergency room, but I'm in the ambulance, so they're gonna see me, right? So we get to the, we get to the emergency room and they unload me, put me in the uncomfortable plastic chair and they throw me the peace sign and walk out. And I'm like, oh no. And meantime, Francesca's going crazy. She's texting everybody, sending out the bat singles. Latachula, help, come, help. And like to all of my friends, right? And uh, Latasha's in crisis, come help me. Um, and so she went out to the lobby to pick up one of my friends. And I'm sitting in a chair, and then I start feeling this, again, like something's wrong. And then I start seeing the confetti, I taste the metallic taste, and so I try to, you know, help, help. And this is Lincoln Hospital, one of the most, you know, the busiest time, emergency rooms in New York City. So they're like, yeah, lady, all right, whatever. And then I don't remember anything. So this is told to me, you know, by my friends. So they came and apparently I had gotten much worse. A part of my face started drooping. They did the assessments, of course I failed. And it was clear that I was having a massive stroke right in the middle of the emergency room. So Francesca ran to get a doctor and she was like, my friend is dying, help, help. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Then she pulled out her Columbia ID and she was like, I'm a neurologist from Columbia and I'm outraged. And she's not a neurologist from Columbia, but they believed it. 
And so they came and they surrounded me. And of course, like they did assessments. And of course, it was happening right there. And so when I came through, I was laying down and I remember not really being able to see anything. It was like one of those alien abductions of what you hear. You just like hear things, right? And I could hear the doctors over here and I could hear my friends. And it was like four of my friends and I could hear their voices. And I remember the doctor was tapping me on my shoulder and he was like, honey, I need you to lift your left leg. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna lift, I got this. And so I was lifting, oh, oh, try They were like, okay, honey, lift your right arm. And I was like, oh, I'm lifting. And then they were like, we need you to lift. And I was like, I'm trying. And then they were like, then I started crying. And then they were like, oh no, it's fine. You don't have to lift. And I was like, why you asked me that, <laughs> you know? And then they started asking all these questions. They're like, who is gonna be in charge of making all of these medical decisions for you? And I'm like, I don't know. And I said, okay, there's four friends. I'm gonna pick Peel over Bonnie. And they were like, Peel, are you sure? And I was like, why are they asking me if I'm sure or not? You know? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. And then I was like, oh man. I'm gonna have to really tell all my other friends why I picked her over the And I was like, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> this is that, you know, you know, I had to pick her because she's, you know, she's a go-getter. The other people are crying and stuff. I can hear them crying and the, they're rocking and she's like, charge, you know? That's the appeal that I know. And I was like, I need that, you know, I need that energy. And then they violated hardcore. The doctor was like, how much do you weigh? And I was like, what? What are you gonna do, ask me my age next? I was like, I'm not telling you. And they were like, honey, we need to know your, age, your weight so that we can mix up this, give you the TPA to really bust these clots in your head. You know, and I was like, okay. So I gave him a number that was 20 pounds less than I uh, Because I was offended. And they shouldn't have asked me that in front of other people. And they should know that I was gonna lie anyway. So add 20, like normal people. And they were like, are you sure? Because they knew I was lying. They knew I was lying. They knew it. And one guy was like, listen, I don't think so. Uh, can we uh, get the bed that weighs people? I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, you asshole. I was like, nobody, nope. That's how much I weigh. I know, because I weighed myself this morning. Lies. But I was like, yeah, I know, I know. And they were like, okay, okay, okay. Sure, we believed you. I was like, okay, And so then I was like, okay, okay, fine. And so then, they, it, they gave me the medicine. I don't think it worked, <laughs> my bad. Um, <laughs> so, you know, retrospect, I realized that I was really ready to risk my life <laughs> instead of telling my real weight. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm shallow. So, okay, they ended up calling the specialist. Apparently this guy is like Batman. He goes to different, you know, hospitals doing feats of amazingness. And so he was like this hot, caring, loving guy who, 
you know, all of my friends fell in love with and they kept talking about him afterwards. They were like, let's, let's find and follow him on Facebook. You know, let's look at this Instagram. They just fell in love with him. He was like the trifecta, you know, because he was a nerd and hot. And everybody's like, oh, Latasha, you should meet him. Let's try to meet him again. Um, anyway, so they did the procedure. So basically they took, you know, went up my groin, up to my brain and sucked the clot out. But before, yes, it was great. It was great. It felt, it felt amazing. Um, yeah, it definitely felt amazing. Um, but before, you know, he definitely talked to my friends and he was like telling them what's happening and they were like, she might die or be paralyzed for the rest of her life. But somehow they're still in love with this man. Not sure how that happens. But he did save my life. So... I was, I remember waking up the next day. I don't know if it's the next day, but I remember waking up and I was surrounded by my friends and they were like, raise your left hand, like, raise your right arm, raise your left hand, like, raise your right arm. And they didn't say hello, how you doing, what's going on. They were like, raise your left leg. And I was like, okay, I'm raising my left leg. I don't know what the obsession of my left and right leg. But I did. And so there was this sigh of relief. And then they were like, oh, can you, can you see out of your right eye? And so then I did one of these, you know. And I was like, oh, I can kind of still see out of my right eye. But there was like a little bit of haze on it. But I, it wasn't completely black. So big sigh of release from there from there. And so um, then, so all of my friends got really excited because like, you know, obviously I'm going to be surviving and not paralyzed. So after that, you know, that's where the story I feel takes a real big turn because I really was scarred after, you know? So let me set the stage again because I am a cisgendered African-American woman and in her 40s, unless I'm on my dating profile, because <laughs> I'm 35. Um, <laughs> then <laughs> uh, Francesca is a cisgendered Italian woman in her 30s. And every time a doctor came in, they would say, how long have you let your cholesterol get out of control? How long has it been? How long has you ha have you had hypertension? How long have you had diabetes? And I was like, I don't have any of those things. <laughs> and it was just so, like they were just coming in, they were asking me these questions without even looking at my chart. If they looked at my chart, they would know that all of these things are normal. And it got to the point that every time a doctor came in, I was trying to tell them, and they were trying to tell me I'm, I was wrong, and I would say, I am right. And then Francesca started talking for me, because I just stopped, I kind of shut down. And she started talking for me. And she would start saying, you know, she's a neuroscientist, and she's super smart, and she knows all this stuff, so you need to like, you know, you know, basically understand that she knows. And I just stopped talking. And it was so frustrating for me. I was an anomaly because I didn't have any of the risk factors to have a stroke at 40. So they didn't really understand what was happening. So I had an aortic dissection. So it's like, also, 
You get these if you are in a car wreck or you have some trauma in your neck. And so then they were like, okay, she must have been on a car wreck. So they kept coming in, they were like, were you in a cab? I was like, no, I've never been, I'm not in a cab, I wasn't in a cab. I take the bus, because I'm cheap. And they were like, no, okay, all right, fine. Who hit you? And I was like, what? They were like, no, you can tell us who hit you. And I was like, no one. And then it was just so frustrating because when they saw me, they didn't see who, like all of the things I felt like I accomplished and all of my knowledge and all of my past knowledge of myself. They just saw a black woman who maybe not looks like, you know, Zendaya, (laughs) you know? And so they were just like, oh, this is what she is. So they made all of these assumptions about me and who I was without asking and without even looking at my charts. And it made me feel like no matter what, my voice didn't matter and that if I needed somebody who didn't look like me to advocate for myself, for me. And it left me with a sense of real deep insecurity because I felt like I had this ticking time bomb that I didn't know why this happened to me and could it happen to me again and nobody's around to save me or to advocate for me. And I felt like, I just felt like I was at this point in my life where I just wanted to give up because I just was like, what is there to, how can I, I've done all of this work to get to this point and I'm still just a stereotype to everybody who sees me. So they eventually put me back, you know, discharged me onto the floor and um, then they gave me physical therapy because I wasn't able to walk well. And then I got a physical therapist and I was able, they were telling me I need physical therapy. And also my insurance didn't, wasn't taken at this hospital. So they were like, there's a door. Um, And on your way out, you should talk to the dietician about your diabetes. And I was like, I don't have diabetes. But it was just that one last fuck you, you know, that I felt by, by the establishment. And it took me, about eight months and five doctors before one doctor was even curious about why I had this stroke at 40 and helped me to understand why it happened and that it probably won't happen again. And it took me a couple months to learn how to walk, um, to be able to walk for long distances um, by myself. And then, but you know, there were some really great bright spots at the end. My brother came to stay with me, um, which was nice. But I had these wonderful friends who set up this calendar, this Google calendar. And it was like, everybody would sign up to come buy me groceries, come cook for me, come visit me. And they called it Latasha's Army. And I was like, (laughs) okay. You know, it was so touching. You know, like you really just don't know like your impact on the world, especially, you know, someone like me who's single, childless, job obsessed, 
I've always wondered what will happen, you know, when I get old and can't take care of myself, you know? And you know, and as a lot of black women, we really, we really are scared to go to the doctor. We are scared to be our own advocate. And through this experience, even though I was able to advocate for my mother in that same emergency room, I was not able to advocate for myself. So what is the antidote to this? Um, I have these group of amazing, smart, diverse, just badass women who are there for me, who have shown that they will give unconditional support of their resources and their time to be with me in my time of need. So I may have lost some of the sight in my right eye, but my vision for the future has not been clear. That was Latasha Wright. Latasha Wright is the chief scientist at BioBus, a nonprofit organization that inspires students to engage with hands-on science research and inquiry while allowing them to explore the prospect of careers in STEM. She has also co-authored numerous publications, presented her work at international and national conferences, and is a Story Collider board member. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. Next week, we have a show in New York at Caveat featuring stories about the times when science shook our foundations. You can attend in person or catch the live stream. And we also have shows in Toronto, St. Louis, and D.C. this September. You can check out storycollider.org shows for more information. And if you would like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops, both online and in person for groups. And we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, for more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is also from Latasha. Some of you might have heard this one before since it's an oldie, but a goodie. In fact, here at Story Collider, this Latasha story is a fan favorite and frequently used as a teaching tool in our workshops. I've always loved the ocean. The sights, the sounds, the tastes. Um, you know, when you can take a deep breath and go, and you have that taste in your mouth. Um, I love that. I love it a lot. Um, I'm from Mississippi. Um, I'm the youngest of five children. Um, I have four rambunctious brothers. Um, and so when we were young and rowdy, um, when we got really excitable, 
let's just say, my mom and dad would pack us all in the car, just one car, you know, before seatbelts, it's okay. Um, <laughs> we're in Mississippi, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and take us all to the beach. And my brothers and my dad would put crabbing lines out to catch crabs, and I would just run wild on the beach and go crazy and, uh, you know, kind of just kind of primal. Um, and I would think about like all of the animals in the water and I would fantasize about them and I would think about um, what they are doing or they hang who are they hanging out with. Um, and I was obsessed, obsessed with dolphins. I loved them, I thought they were beautiful, they were smart, and you know, obviously, just like me. Um, so I wanted to be one. And, um, and I wanted to be one so bad that I had a dolphin name. And, and I had, okay, don't tell anybody, this is a total secret. <laughs> But I had a dolphin name that was a lot of clicks and whistles. <laughs> and I made my whole family call me by this name. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't tell anybody, you, I can trust. <laughs> and so then, um, <laughs> That just meant I was gonna be a scientist, okay? Cause I was not this flipper crap, you know, like a real thing. And so, fast forward, I did become a scientist, uh, and then, you know, I started working. I came, moved from Mississippi to New York, um, and I learned that, you know, I was on the bench doing real science, real science. And then I decided I didn't really like it, but I like talking about science a lot um, and communicating science. So then I started this working at a science outreach organization called the Biobus. And they, we, are, we went to, we basically was a you know couple hippies. We got together on this 1974 bus and we just kind of, Went to schools and were like, hey guys, come on aboard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's much more polished now, trust me. Uh, <laughs> 10 years later. Um, and so then, so as we got bigger, you know, we got more, you know, we kind of, you know, you know, stop wearing tie-dye every day. Um, people started taking us seriously, and I got this opportunity to go to Egypt to, yeah, to do a bio boat on the Red Sea. So it was like, you know, have these, um, and it actually, when I first thought about it, it was like, oh, it's gonna be like a barge. But when I got there, it was a yacht. And I was like, this is what I deserve. <laughs> Of course, I had to keep coming back, so it was so horrible. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure this is right outfit. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna come back, you know? And so we, it was really a lot of hard work. <laughs> and 
you know, don't tell anybody. This is a secret, total secret. Don't tell anybody. And so um, it was like, you know, we outfitted it all and we were ready. So after three years, you know, I was ready to go back to launch this, this boat. So this was really my thing. Um, and then on February 13, 2007, my mom and dad, they woke up together, um, they had breakfast, and then my mom was like, I'm going to grocery store. And he was like, okay. Um, and then when she came back, my father had passed away. So he, um, she found him um, just laying on the floor because he had had a heart attack. And you, you have to understand, my dad was like this, this person who was never sick, who was always like, whenever you saw him, he was kind of the kind of macho dude-ish kind of guy, you know? And whenever I was like, are you feeling, how are you feeling? He's like, oh, yeah, strong as a horse, baby doll, strong as a horse. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was the one who was always sick. My mom had cancer twice, you know. Um, she had all of these things. Like in 2005, she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And at that time, when she was diagnosed, the survival rate was 30%. Um, and so, like, that was 10 years ago. So it was really like everybody was kind of excited that she was like, ex, you know, we were all focused on my mom. Um, but I remember getting the call because I was uh, in a meeting and my brother called and he never calls and he and he just kept calling because I kept cutting dismiss, dismiss. And then he kept calling. So then I was like, OK, this must be something. So I went out and I got the and I was like, hello. And he was like, dad died. And for me, it was like hitting the head with a sledgehammer, right? And I was like, but I'm going to Egypt to, on Friday. <laughs> and he was, there was a pause from him and from me. And because in my mind, two things couldn't happen at the same time. Like, I couldn't have this great thing that I've been working so hard for and a super great accomplishment in my career and my dad dying. And then he just said, Latasha. And it was like, oh, you know, and things kind of rearranged themselves in my mind. And I was like, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. And then I just spent the next half an hour um, on the floor of the bathroom crying. And then I'm texting, text my colleagues, and they brought my stuff to the bathroom for me. And then I left. I got home, I made my reservations for Mississippi, and I changed my flights for Egypt from Friday to Monday. Um, and you don't understand, like, this was my first time experiencing loss as an adult, you know? Because, you know, my grandpa, my grandparents had died when I was a kid, but, you know, it wasn't the same. And I remember thinking very vividly, do people really wear black at a funeral or is this like TV? 
Um, and so then I threw my black dress, my black shoes in a bag and I, you know, went to the airport and I came to Mississippi. Um, and then my brother and my mom were there to pick me up. And I remember seeing my mom and my mom was so, looked so fragile. And then immediately things changed in my head. And I was like, okay, my job is, I'm not a daughter here. I'm my mother's support. I'm helping her through this process. And we did all the things that, you know, grieving families do. We went to pick up the casket and found the right, you know, um, flowers and, you know, wrote the obituary and, and all of that kind of things. And there was, we were all together, I have four brothers and they're all married and we all have children, they all have children. So it's tons of people in the house and it's, it's loud and, but there was just a voice missing, you know, because my dad was always the loudest and he wasn't there. And so it was like some vacuum that was missing, you know? And so the day of the funeral, where I get there, again, we're in Mississippi, so let me just say that. So people were saying, my mom, oh, I thought you were gonna die first. <laughs> and she's like, me too. <laughs> and so after the funeral, I come back, I fly back to, to New York, um, and none of my friends and none of my family could understand like, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I like take time? Why wouldn't I like, why did I want to go back to this thing that I had planned? And the reason why, I'll just be honest, is that I wanted to be Latasha, not Latasha whose dad just died. I didn't want, you know, I was in the Bible bus, as you can imagine, we're all hippies. They like to hug you and touch you. And I didn't want all the touching and the hugging and all of that. I just wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like, not like it didn't really happen. And so I wanted to go to a place where I could be myself and I could escape this. And my dad didn't die. So I went to Egypt um, and it was amazing. The launch was great. Um, there was a wonderful children. They were all Egyptian and none of them spoke English and I didn't speak any Egyptian, but we communicated through like, ah, look, oh, ah, ah, you know, <laughs> universal language of science, um, <laughs> pointing and, and going like this. Um, so we did a bunch of plankton toes, it was amazing. And then we also did the universal language of selfies. Um, so we took tons of selfies. So at the end of the day, we went to the back of the boat cause that was prime selfie place. Um, and there was this pot of dolphins that was playing in the wake. There were adolescents, there were dad, moms and dads and, and just babies just doing their thing. And they were so beautiful. And I was with all of these wonderful kids who had, you know, had such a great time. And we saw this pile of dolphins and it felt like family. That was Latasha Wright again. 
The Story Collider is so grateful to Latasha for sharing her stories with us time and time again, as well as being an excellent board member here at Story Collider. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, and with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Tracy Cigar and Tracy Rowland and Nissa Greenberg and Tracy Rowland, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we're going to have even more classic Story Clatter stories with Aaron Barker. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.